You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, I'm Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. And I'm here today with AJ Agarwal, who is the professor of entrepreneurship at the Rotman School, University of Toronto, and also the founder of the Creative Destruction Lab. You'll have to tell us a little bit about how that works. But of course, he's also the author of this book, Prediction Machines, or co-author of this book, Prediction Machines, with Avi Goldfarb and Joshua Gans. I think this book has been translated into a couple different languages and is, is a big hit. So welcome, AJ. Yeah, thanks very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we jump into the book, tell us a little bit about the Creative Destruction Lab and what was your inspiration for founding that and how it actually operates. Sure. And the Creative Destruction Lab is, in fact, the precursor to the book. It's the setting that led to the book. So Creative Destruction Lab, it's a program for early stage, science-based, C-stage tech companies. And the basic idea, the prototypical applicant to the program is someone who's just graduated with a master's or PhD, sometimes undergrads. They've got some slice into some technical domain where they are at the frontier. They've invented a thing and they want to commercialize it. And so typically the applicants that come to us have some kind of really cool innovation and a terrible business plan. And that's our sweet spot is great science and terrible business. And we have a a process. It's not an incubator. It's not an accelerator. We don't have any physical space. And without going into a lot of the details, the main idea is that we've seen so many inventors, especially in areas outside of the Bay Area, there's something just different about the Bay than everywhere else. And our view was there's a lot of great scientists, inventors outside of the Bay that do great work and yet really struggle to bring their products to market. And so what can we do to help them? And so this program is designed with the basic belief that the main mode of failure is people that have never built a business before. They're very smart on the technical side, but they have a hard time prioritizing things on the business side. And so entrepreneur wakes up in the morning, they've got a list of a thousand things they could be doing to build their business. They don't have the bandwidth to do all those thousand things. So they have to pick from the list. And it's the act of picking from the list where they traditionally fall down. They pick the wrong things. They work on them for a few months and they realize, oh, these are not the right things. So they go back to the list. They pick a few more things. And after you go through that cycle enough times, they run out of capital, run out of energy, run out of sanity, and the business collapses, which is typically the most likely outcome, statistically the most likely outcome. And so Creative Destruction Lab is a process where effectively we meet every eight weeks with a bunch of entrepreneurs who have built significant tech companies before, and they are there to help the first-time founders prioritize. And so every eight weeks, they give them three objectives, and then they do an eight-week sprint, and then they come back in eight weeks, and they set the next three objectives, and it goes like that for five cycles. That's basically how it works. And so in 2012, we had our first cohort, and in that cohort, there was a company that was applying this new computer science technique that had been pioneered to a significant extent at University of Toronto called deep learning. And at the time, nobody knew what that was. And he wanted to use it, apply it to predicting which molecules would most effectively bind to which proteins in a way that would transform how we do drug discovery. That company has subsequently raised about 120 million bucks. They're called Atomwise. And then there was the next year, several more. And then after that, a whole flood of them. And that's when we decided 
it's called Creative Destruction Lab. It's a lab. There's a bunch of professors running around. We started documenting all this stuff. And then by about 2015, we realized, okay, this is not just like the same as innovations in other domains. There's something special about this one. And so that led to deciding to write a book. Now, look, you're not a deep learning specialist. You're not a, a data scientist by training originally. And yet you play a very important role and the people in, the, in this organization are able to play a very important role in sculpting and shaping successful businesses. And in this book, which I really enjoyed, and I think I'm going to assign to my students, I'm looking through here and there's nothing on support vector machines. There's nothing on bootstrapping and bagging. And, and I'm like, wait, where is all, there's nothing technical in here. And yet, as you say, I think in the very beginning, what economists are really good at is cutting through the hype. So what is the advantage of simplifying? What is it that you can see when you cut through the hype that might be obscured when you are kind of deep in the weeds in the technical side of things? So the main thing here was the insight after we started probing into a number of different applications and what various techniques that were gaining popularity in machine learning were doing was recognizing that all this was effectively prediction. And in computer science, they call it different things. Oh, this is a causal inference problem. This is a prediction problem. This is a classification problem. But at their root, they're really all prediction problems. And what people didn't realize was how deep a phenomenon prediction was. Mm -hmm. In other words, everybody knew that, okay, one form of prediction is that I have 20 years of historical operating data and let's say sales data, and then I can use that historical data to predict what sales will be in Q3 next year. But many people didn't realize that uh, vision was also a prediction problem, mm -hmm. that I could have a bunch of pixels in a medical image, and that's the data I have. And the data I don't have is the label on the tumor as malignant or benign. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I want to predict. And so when people started to realize, wait a minute, image recognition is a prediction problem, and that it's not just a neat party trick, when people can develop machines that can label images and pictures, then effectively machines can see. And when machines can see, that means things like cars can drive themselves. And then the light bulb started to go off. And at the root of all this was prediction. And so the economics point here was that what this technology was doing was driving down the cost of prediction. And then back to Economics 101, downward sloping demand curves, that when the cost of prediction falls, we use more of it. And then that started us down the chain of, okay, if we're going to use more prediction, how are we going to use it? And so that became the insight that then led to a number of the key points in the book. Yeah, I think a lot of people misunderstand prediction. They think that prediction is sort of a longitudinal in time, and you're predicting temporally what's going to happen, but really it's about filling in missing values in, in a table. If you had complete visibility into the table rather than having a bunch of you know, cells obscured, Prediction's really guessing what those values are. And once you see it that way, then it's sort of everywhere. It really is sort of everywhere. I've watched people, just their faces and expressions when they try things for the first time, like GPT-3. And then when they realize that this is effectively prediction, that you get a prompt, a character string, and then you predict what are the words that will come next. And they realize, wait a minute, there's no structural language model sitting here that this is a bunch of predictions that they become really quite amazed. People were familiar with, okay, I get it. We use prediction in banks for things like fraud detection. But once we started getting to more interesting applications of machine intelligence, that realizing at the core was all the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's mm -hmm. fraud detection 
or Netflix recommendations of what movie you want to watch next, or GPT-3 generating language that is fundamentally all prediction. You know, a lot of people think that they were doing machine learning back when they were doing regression in Excel to say, hey, wait, I, I know how to do this, right? And if all you're telling me is that what's new is that I've got more rows and more columns and I've got a faster GPU, then this story about cheaper prediction makes sense. But I think you're saying something more than that. I mean, machine learning is, it's not about causal inference. It's not about hypothesis testing. It's, it doesn't come with any kind of preconceived structural model, but rather is agnostic about a lot of those things. How does that change our ability to predict? Well, the way we think about it from an economics perspective is that it makes the difference, Greg, between a sort of modest improvement, the kind of things that you would have never invited me onto your podcast to talk about, like advances in econometrics, where we get a slightly better statistical model for running some kind of regression, to such a step function change in the ability to predict that it leads to different behaviors. So you're right when you say, well, is it just more than just more rows and columns? For example, in one thing, one aspect is that we don't need someone to sit there and figure out the statistical model. Part of the beauty is that the machine creates the model itself. But the real benefit is there's some point beyond which it's so much, for the non-technical person, they can think it's just so much cheaper that it goes beyond just incremental reduction in cost to transforms the way you think about a thing because it's so much cheaper. And so when we think about, for example, the original high cost of distributed electricity, in the beginning, people were treating electricity like oil-based lamps, really conservative use of it. Once the cost started falling, we started just using it in all kinds of ways. I think the most obvious one for many of your listeners will be, you know, think about photography. For those who are old enough to still remember taking pictures with a canister of film, you thought about photography differently when every shot was costing you film, and then you would walk over to some shop somewhere to get your film developed. And just the way that we use photography now is just a different, it's not just that we do more of it, we do it differently because it's effectively free. One of the things that you pointed out is that when you go from 80 to 90% accuracy, that's great. But when you go from 95% to 99.9% accuracy, that's just an order of magnitude more significant because the error rate is declining by a much, much larger percentage. It's different for different businesses. Think of it as the transition point of when you start using prediction differently. And so an example that we give in the book is Amazon's prediction. And in the beginning, it gets a little bit better, a little bit better. And so it can give a little bit better recommendations, which are like better coupons. You can think of them like just slightly more personalized coupons. But when it gets good enough, it leads to an incentive to change the business model where all of a sudden they start shipping you things before you even order them. And because it's more advantageous for them to preempt you potentially ordering those things from one of their competitors, it just arrives at your doorstep and then you can just send back the things you don't want. And for them, the cost of handling the stuff that you give back, that cost is outweighed by the benefit of selling you more stuff that you might have otherwise bought from their competitors. And so that kind of shift is the ones that are business changing. And so we're starting to see in, in industries like insurance, where companies that are digital first, ones like Hippo and Lemonade, that Lemonade, you came out of effectively nowhere. And depending on the day you check, the market cap's kind of volatile, but it went public last summer and its market cap hovers somewhere between six and $12 billion. 
and it's covering a very tiny segment right now of the insurance market, but it's just using a lot of machine intelligence for making predictions on the thing that matters most in insurance, which is predicting a claim, whether someone will file a claim and the value of the claims they'll file. So predicting loss. I don't know if that model is going to catch on in terms of the mainstream insurers, but it certainly looks like they've created a lot of equity value in a very short period of time by taking that approach. A friend of mine founded a mortgage insurance company and truly revolutionary because the old way of doing you know, mortgage insurance was you sent people around to do the due diligence and to actually do all this investigating to find out if there was any kind of impairment, to find out if there was any lien somewhere in the record and so forth. And his brilliant idea was, well, we don't need to know with certainty whether there's a claim or not. We just need to predict whether there's, there's a claim and we can do that for a tiny fraction of the cost. And we can get rid of all these claims investigators because we just have so much data that we can use to train our, our models. I love how you just kind of bring everything right back to basic microeconomics and just talk about costs. And if the cost of predicting is going down, then the amount of prediction that we're going to see is going to go dramatically up. In one of my classes, I talk about advertising and the John Wanamaker claim that 50% of our advertising is wasted. We just don't know which half. And the question is, well, if you did know which half, would you advertise more or advertise less? And I think most people, their natural response is, well, this is great. I can just get rid of the half that's ineffective. But in reality, it's like, wait, if I get a bigger bang for my advertising buck, I should be advertising even more. And I think that's kind of the counterintuitive thing is that the more accurate your predictions are, the more predictions you're going to make. Greg, that is at some level, that is the most important point. And in my view, the one that the popular press gets wrong the most, because people start down the first half of your comment there and say, well, now we know which half works and which half doesn't. We'll do fewer. And furthermore, that used to be humans doing it. Now it's machines. And so we're going to lose the jobs. First of all, as you say, we're doing much more prediction because we get a higher ROI, the return Mm -hmm. on investment. So in your example, the return on investment for advertising goes up, not down, because you're getting a higher hit rate. And so like most things, when the ROI goes up, you spend more money on the thing, not less. And so exactly right. People advertise more, not less when they get a higher ROI from advertising. And then along with the point that the cost of prediction goes down is the corollary point, which is what happens to other stuff that's not prediction. And that's where we get into complements and substitutes. And so the substitute complements are things that we use together, like butter and bread are complements, coffee and cream are complements, golf clubs and golf balls are complements, and substitutes are things we use instead of one another, like butter and margarine are substitutes, and coffee and tea are substitutes. And so when the cost of something falls, the value of the complements goes up and the value of the substitutes goes down. If the cost of butter falls because we use butter and bread together, now we spend less money on butter so we can buy more bread. The demand for bread goes up, the value of bread increases. Whereas when the cost of butter falls, on the other side with substitutes, some people that might have otherwise bought margarine now switch over to butter because butter's become cheaper. And so they move to butter and the demand for margarine drops and the value of margarine falls. And so in the case of AI, drops the cost of prediction. As you say, we do more prediction. And then because we do more prediction, now there's more demand for the complements to prediction, the other stuff. And so just like we do more advertising, we do more of everything where there's more prediction and everything that we do more of, then there's more demand for the complements and those complements drive more jobs. And so that's the part that I feel the popular press keeps missing. Yeah, and I think the obvious complements are, of course, 
the things that generate the data, right? So we think about sensors and the value of sensors, the value of any kind of device that will capture data is going to go up. The value of the data, of course, is going to go up. But I think the thing that you highlight is that the value of judgment is going to go up. Maybe we can start with the data piece. You know, I teach a course called Data Strategy, and it's basically the whole concept of the course is that every company is engaged in this battle to obtain proprietary data, which means, on the one hand, to gather as much data as you can, but also to ring-fence that data so that others don't have any visibility into that data. And so I, I talk about like the, the data wars. But in your discussion of data, you highlight the economies of scale. But I think your point is that the economies of scale aren't as, as extreme as we might believe. Could you talk a bit about how this impacts optimal firm size, at least in, in the horizontal dimension? Sure. So first of all, it totally depends on the prediction. And so that's where we always start is what is the prediction here? Because often having boatloads of data, unless that data got information that can enhance the prediction, the data is of limited value. So in other words, having search data isn't going to help you with autonomous driving necessarily. Right. And then furthermore, even with search data, while it's true that it'd be very hard to compete with Google on general search, you could imagine having a much smaller data set, but very focused in a particular domain and out-competing Google in a narrow domain of search where you've got more data of a very specific nature. And so, for example, there was a company that came through Creative Destruction Lab that was focused on search for a particular type of content in the drug discovery process. And so in setting up experiments and identifying reagents. So by reading through thousands of peer-reviewed published papers in uh, the health sciences, identifying if you wanted to run a certain kind of experiment, what would be the optimal reagent? So that's a search problem where they effectively developed a search engine that was specialized to that task. And so they didn't need to have the vast amount of data that Google has for a search in order to still be able to have a very effective search and compete in that narrow market. You also mentioned the difference between training data, input data, and feedback data, and how those play different roles in the prediction process. Do you ever see situations where companies are leaders in training data, but they don't have the access to the feedback data that would enable them to improve their models over time? That is key, is the feedback data. And so sometimes, for example, startups at Creative Destruction Lab, they have done something clever in order to get historical data. They've trained a model. So let's say it's a model to predict. We had a company that built a demand forecasting model to predict the demand for perishable goods, fruits, vegetables, yogurt at a grocery store. And it was better than the -the state-of-the-art demand forecasting tools at the time. They used weather and other features in addition to the traditional features for making those predictions. But when they tried to launch their business, the key was that what they needed from their customers, the grocery stores that would license this prediction tool, they needed the feedback data, which is they would make these predictions of how many cartons of yogurt to order. And then at the end of the week, they needed to know how many people actually bought yogurt and how much was thrown away. And so that became the battleground. And in fact, it's the battleground for many of our startups. If they're selling to enterprise, enterprise usually is the one that owns the feedback data. Mm -hmm. So if you're selling a prediction to insurance firm about the likelihood of a customer having a loss, 
The only way to update the model is to get the loss data. And if you're making a prediction tool that you want to sell to banks about, for example, loans, whether to give someone a loan, the feedback data you need is after you make your prediction of whether someone will repay their loan, then you need the data to find out, did they actually repay their loan? And so that is, I would say, the number one battleground these days with AI startups is if they're focused on a B2B business. And so selling their predictions to companies is, does the startup company get access to the feedback data? Or Genderprise, they've started to realize we're not going to just give it away. Yeah, I was talking to a VC named Jake Flumenberg, who used to be at Excel, and he said that when he's evaluating startups, if they come and they say, hey, we've got this great new algorithm, we're an AI company, he says, well, I'm not, I'm not really interested in But if you come to me and say that you've got unique access to some flow of data, you can insert yourself into, you have a way of kind of getting enterprise to admit you inside the building and have access to their stream of data, then I'm interested and we can tweak the algorithms later, right? That's not really where the competitive advantage comes from. It's really from getting inserted into that data stream. That's the hard part. Yeah, I think that's right. What the startups learn very quickly, Greg, is that their predictions are worth zero unless they inform an action. And so the reason that they have to get involved with those large companies very often is because the startup doesn't own the action, the large enterprise. So let's say the action is actually issuing a bank loan or selling insurance to a customer. In the case of the grocery, selling fruits and vegetables and yogurt, that's the action. The prediction is just the tool to inform the action. And so at least in the startup world, this is a very big deal is once you built your prediction models, finding your customers that actually own the actions to make your predictions valuable. Now, getting back to kind of basics, Econ 101, I found you had a very good description of comparative advantage. When we're thinking about what should be done by silicon and what should be done by carbon, what is the role of the human in the decision-making process? You kind of liken the idea, hey, we've got this country called Robot Land, and we want to start trading with Robot Land. How would we decide on the division of labor between human land and, and robot land? Can you talk about why is that insight so important, and how does that help people to understand the continued role of humans in the decision-making process? First of all, it's just like a, an instantiation of splitting out the tasks in a way that helps people envision it. It's important to point out that you don't think in terms of jobs, right? You think in terms of tasks. That's right. And so we use that communication approach to help people think in terms of, because in terms of trade and comparative advantage, it makes sense. Nobody sort of seems to mind that all of their oranges or bananas come from a different country and they don't feel like, well, we're losing all our banana or orange picking jobs because they're in another country. They agree, you know what, it makes more sense for them to specialize in oranges and for us to specialize in something else, computers or something. So we thought as a communication tool, that made sense. The key point we were trying to get across the way to think about the introduction of this tool into our workforce or economy is that it allows people to specialize in the things that we're good at. And so you can think of it as if we were trading across countries when in fact, of course, we're not. We're the computer sitting on our desk beside us, cranking out these predictions. But the division of labor is for some people easier to think of that way in terms of comparative advantage. 
A useful way that we found that helps people get their head around it is just thinking about accounting before and after spreadsheets. And before spreadsheets, a lot of accountants, a main part of their job was to do arithmetic. They would practice adding and subtracting large columns of data. And nobody does that anymore now that we have spreadsheets, but we still have lots of accountants. And so what do accountants do now if they're not doing the main thing they used to do before, which was arithmetic? And the point is the machine does the arithmetic. So basically think of arithmetic as being the thing that's being done in robot land. And back in human land, we are deciding what numbers to put into the spreadsheet. We're deciding which variables to change. We're deciding which spreadsheets to make. And so we have no shortage of accountants, even though nobody does what most accountants used to spend most of their time doing before we had spreadsheets. Bank tellers also, everyone points to bank tellers as the example of jobs that have increased since the introduction of the ATM. Right. And the key point here, Greg, is the ability for people to do different tasks. Because the counterpoint to the bank tellers and the accountants, the one that is very often trotted out, are horses. And people point to, look, there used to be all these horses that had this job. And then when automobiles came along, the horses kind of disappeared. And there was an untimely demise for many horses that used to be, in some sense, employed. And so there's a fear, are we going to be the horses? And I think the key difference between the horses and the bank tellers is that humans have general purpose capabilities. So in other words, horses were able to do effectively one thing, which was pull the cart, whereas humans have the capacity to do multiple different things. You know, Jeffrey Hinton, who is also up there in Toronto, and I think most people don't appreciate how important Toronto has been in the history of artificial intelligence. He said that we should stop training radiologists now. Like, why do we continue to train radiologists? And you have an interesting take on that. Could you tell us about that? So I think Jeff Hinton made a very important point, which was that many people think of AIs as doing very basic, repetitive tasks that we associate with low-income jobs. And so part of his shock and awe was to use the radiologists as his example, because they are one of the most highly trained, highly paid professions in the world. But the thing they learn to do in other words, that they spend many years training, one of the key things that makes them a radiologist as opposed to some other kind of doctor is effectively image recognition. So they are used to looking at these very complex medical images from CAT scans and x-rays and MRIs and so on and interpreting them. And of course, that's the kind of thing that AIs are very good at. And so I think we would agree with his key point that The thing that they go to school to do, just like accountants 40 years ago, before the spreadsheets, accounts were coming and they were, one of their homework assignments was they would be told to go and rip out page 47 from the phone book and add up all the numbers in the phone book just to practice their adding and subtracting. So the thing that radiologists are largely trained to do, that will largely go away because the machines will do it. But radiologists do lots of other things. They've got a way of, once they have interpreted an image or a set of images, how do they manage that information? And through the doctors, through the patient, that whole flow of information. Now, whether or not, as we say in the book, that is carried out by somebody we call a radiologist or whether it's somebody else, a different title, because the main training that person gets will not be in image recognition anymore. But there are many other functions and those things somebody will still need to do. 
Yeah, and I think redesigning the workplace is is something that's super important. Figuring out where those interfaces are going to be, and and then hiring for the things that we know can't be done by the prediction machines. In particular, you talk about HR and how HR, the recruiting process, a lot of it was fairly formulaic and could be automated, but then that frees up the resources of the HR department to look at much more complicated cues and things that are more difficult to evaluate. Yeah, I think a lot of the jobs that we do will start becoming what today we would call exceptions management, how to handle exceptions. Because most things that are routine, those are precisely the kinds of things that we can train AIs to do. And so all of the exceptions where we don't have enough data to train the models, and so the AI goes to do it, makes a prediction, and then realizes the prediction's a low quality, meaning that there's a high variance or a big confidence interval around that prediction. It says, I'm not very confident about this. And so it passes that over and asks the human, what should we do about it? And so today we might call that exceptions management, but I suspect in the future that will just be called a job. Now you go through this topology that I think you kind of borrowed from Donald Rumsfeld. (laughs) You talk about the known knowns, the unknown unknowns. As you walk through that, I think what comes to the surface is really the unique role of humans and in particular how important it is for people who are managing these workflows to understand some things which we might call common sense, but which really are a nuanced understanding of causation, a nuanced understanding of things like omitted variables, reverse causation, etc. Do you think that this is something which has to be incorporated into general education? I know in, in business schools, I spent a lot of time teaching in their core statistics class, really understanding inference, understanding how you can misinterpret the data, understanding how if you put something on autopilot and you don't have any domain expertise, you're going to wind up with some crazy answers. Is this really this kind of fortified common sense, the thing that's going to be the the resource that's in scarcest demand among humans? I know McKinsey said that there was going to be this huge shortage of data scientists, and then they had to change and start saying that what they really want are these data-savvy managers. And I think that when we talk about data-savvy managers, it's not just managers that know how to use uh, TensorFlow, but really ones that can understand the limitations of these techniques. I agree with that, that we definitely will need data-savvy managers. But I would add on to that and say that I think... 10 years from now, we will look back and say, wow, we really over-index on STEM. That STEM is very important for sure, but the arts, like history, philosophy, social sciences like economics, and so on, to even know what do we want to predict in the first place. And so we haven't talked very much about reinforcement learning yet, but a key part in reinforcement learning is to figure out the value function, how to design the reward system. And so it's okay. We don't need people to do that when we're doing it in a game like Go or any game because that reward system's been designed. The game is here's the rules and here's how you win and here's how you get points since so the reward system is done for us. In some sense, the hardest part is done. That's why we do games. But if we want a reward system, like if we want a reward system for a reinforcement learning system to, for example, be a personal coach for each of your MBA students through the MBA program, And so what courses should we recommend to them and which professors should spend time with them when and what assignments should we give them? We have to know, well, what's their objective? What are they trying to achieve in the first place? So in other words, once we have the tools to do those types of predictions, then we have to figure out, well, what do we want to use them for? 
I don't think we need a data savvy manager to figure out that. We need a completely different kind of a person to work with, for example, your MBA students to say to them before they begin their program, what are your objectives? And how will we know if this has been a success, this MBA that you're doing with us here? And will we judge that two years out, three years out, 10 years out? What will success look like? And then once they say, well, 10 years from now, I would like to be this kind of a person. Then we say, okay, how do we design a reward system to give to the AI in order for them to make the right predictions of what you should be doing over the next two years in order to give you an MBA that delivers what you want? I think that's a great point. I think you talk about reward function engineering, and I like that term. And the MBA admissions problem is one that you talk about, and it's one that kind of founders on the failure for anyone to agree on what constitutes a good applicant, right? So we have the tools. We could very easily apply some machine learning to our admissions process. We have downstream data. We know who turned out to be X, Y, and Z, but those discussions always fail because no one can agree on what we should be training the model on. Do we want CEOs? Do we want people who are good human beings? Do we want people who are big donors to the school? And so basically what happens is that the reward function engineering is just a mishmash of subconscious and non-explicit committee compromises. Yeah. And Greg, I think that's one of the most interesting things that I found with the work that we've done since the book came out is when companies or even universities or whoever goes to try and implement, then they're forced to turn what's very often kind of a vague hand-wavy mission Mm -hmm. into actual numbers with trade-offs. And then all of a sudden, half the time, the project gets shelved because they don't want to make explicit what they're actually doing. And so it's much easier at sort of a simple profit-seeking private sector company like a bank because they can say pretty explicitly, this is what we're doing, so we want to minimize fraud. But even with a case like fraud, the question is, okay, we're going to set this thing up, and then you're going to have false positives and false negatives. So there's going to be a set of people that your AI is going to predict are fraudulent when they're not, and those might be disproportionately one type of person, like one type of race or gender or some other protected class. And so how willing are we to make predictions that are going to ultimately end up drawing some inferences about different types of people in the customer base? Yeah, I mean, the data scientists, they can generate the confusion matrix, but they can't tell you what the optimal sensitivity is. I think you quote, was it George Stigler who said, if you never missed a flight, you spent too much time in airports? Yeah. I'm a little disturbed and maybe somewhat puzzled when we hear everyone in the coronavirus crisis saying, follow the science. And the fact is, science can't tell you what optimal policy is, right? Science can only tell you at best, if you do this policy, you'll get these consequences, but they can't tell you what you need to do, right? I think economists can play a very important role in articulating the trade-offs and helping people to think through what it is they really want in terms of outcomes. I mean, economists can't tell you what the outcome ought to be, but they, they certainly have a place in, as you say, cutting through the hype and helping people to articulate their priorities. I mean, I think one of the useful features of an economist's toolkit or economist's way of thinking is in making the trade-offs explicit. I think one of the things that just as a kind of a social norm is that we have a reasonably poor sense of being explicit about trade-offs. I very rarely, for example, hear a politician who's presenting a plan present their plan and be explicit about what the trade-offs are of their plan. Mm-hmm. Say, like, I am trading X for Y. Like, in other words, 
this is the benefit of my plan and here's the downsides of my plan. Almost nobody says that. As a result, we all just kind of apply a certain level of skepticism towards everyone's plans. And so I'm sure like the students that graduate from courses like yours, they just develop the mindset for always constructing the framework to figure out the trade-offs. One of the hypotheticals that you raised in, in the book, which I really liked, was when Steve Jobs got up there and introduced the iPhone in 2007, what he didn't say was, oh, and by the way, it's the end for the taxi industry, <laughs> your toast. And it's because we, we fail to sort of see the long-term consequences of these things. In your book, you say that Google is Iowa, and we're all just trying to figure out who's Alabama. And of course, you're referencing the adoption of genetically engineered seeds. But could you talk a little bit more about that? Like, how can we think through what the impacts are going to be in the long run? Yeah, that's a great question. So that paper you're referencing was this really impactful paper by an economist from Harvard named V. Grilichus, and he studied hybrid corn. And the puzzle was that, you know, hybrid corn had all these advantages with regards to being robust to drought and insects and various things. And yet, when it was introduced, Iowa adopted it very quickly. And it took many years for hybrid corn to make its way across the majority of American farmland. And the question was, why? Given it was so good, why didn't everyone adopt it right away? And the answer effectively, so he did a whole bunch of just kind of careful calculations to figure out various things. And this goes back to your point, frankly, on advertising. The punchline of his paper was ROI, that there were a number of uncertainties and things around hybrid corn. And Iowa farms, because of their size and their climate and so on, had the highest ROI. So they were the first to adopt it. And if you sort of follow the list down, like who adopted it when, it's almost perfectly follows the rank order of the return on investment. And so in the case of machine intelligence, you had these companies like Google and so on, where A, they were totally digital already. They were already doing predictions. They were already doing targeted advertising. So they had a whole machinery that was predicated on predictions. And they were very digitally savvy already. And so to them, it was sort of a natural next step. Now, you can imagine insurance firm. Insurance is in a whole industry predicated on prediction. What's taking them so long? From what I can gather, it is that the difference is they just weren't digital. And so they just don't have yep. the digital infrastructure for letting this work all the way through their workflow. Yeah, if you go to the MetLife headquarters, they actually have gigantic warehouses full of paper <laughs> records going back 100 years. It's still all in paper. Yeah, so I think this is going to be really the story of this quarter century is just going to be the timeline of adoption and why some industries move so fast. My guess is by 25 years from now, AI will be pretty much embedded into everything, but there will certainly be a big gap between the early movers and the later ones. Now, one of the forecasts that you make, which I found very intriguing, was this idea around the boundaries of the firm. And I had always thought in the boundaries of the firm here, we're going to primarily be around data capture but you also suggest that vertical integration and contra outsourcing and contracting can be more easily done in a world where there's more certainty, right? So if you can predict better, then you can do more contracting. Because the problem with contracting is that you have to factor in all these different contingencies and so forth. But I was wondering, wouldn't the degree of complexity of the activity kind of rise to meet the new prediction capabilities? Wouldn't we see kind of like a Sam Peltzman story where people start driving faster once they have seatbelts. 
How do you think about this vertical integration story and the contracting and how the trade-off between contracting and integration is affected by better predictions? Okay, well, first of all, Greg, let me just pause for a second and say, your questions are excellent. I have talked to so many people about this book and nobody has traversed this range of topics and really kind of got into the nugget of each domain across the board as you have here. So thank you for doing such a thorough reading of the book. I like it. I mean, I like the book, I have to say. Okay, so this question is a great question. It comes from a field of economics called IO, industrial organization. And one of the main ideas is that if you think about specialization, that you often hear arguments that companies should kind of focus on their main thing that's the core of their business and outsource everything else. And the reason for doing that is because when you outsource a thing, that means that you can drive the cost down because multiple companies compete in order to provide you with that service and that creates efficiencies. For example, let's say I work at a university, we use a lot of paper clips, but we don't make our own paper clips. There's a paper clip manufacturer and they aggregate the demand for lots and lots of different organizations. And so they've got much bigger scale economies than we would have, even though we're a very large institution. And so we can get paper clips much cheaper if they make it than if we make our own. Now, given that there's values to outsourcing, why don't you outsource everything? And one of the main reasons is uncertainty. And so when things are uncertain, it's hard to contract for them. And when it's hard to contract for them, there's a case for integration, either horizontal integration, meaning like across many products or vertical integration going up and down the stack for one product. And so what our argument was in the book is that as you increase your predictions, you're reducing uncertainty, and therefore if you reduce uncertainty, it reduces the case for vertically integrating, so you can then take advantage of all the benefits of outsourcing. Now, you raise a great point, which is the seatbelt point, and people driving faster, and so in other words, might they not just do more complex things as they get more predictions, which means more complexity, it's harder to outsource, and therefore it drives more vertical integration. And since we've published a book, that's been a point that's kind of come into question. And so I think if we were to write the book today, we would be much more circumspect on that point because what we're seeing is there are some cases where AIs are like point solutions. They can just be dropped, like parachuted in, let's say a fraud detection tool in a bank. It's a pretty clean application. It's focused on a specific thing and the rest of the bank operations can pretty much stay as is and you can just kind of precision drop this thing in. But in other cases, it's like you say, where you put in this tool and then it creates opportunities to build other tools and change the workflow and the whole thing starts becoming more complicated. And so the forces work in the other way than what we said in the book. In other words, rather than outsourcing more things, they bring more things inside the company. And so it really seems to be like a case-by-case -case point. And we're finding that some of the biggest applications of machine intelligence are actually happening at a system level, not at a point solution, like just dropping in one prediction into an existing workflow. They have to redesign the full system. And so in that case, the thing is being integrated, not outsourced. You know, at this stage, I would say that is an open question, and it's a lot more nuanced than what we had originally thought when we wrote that chapter in the book. Now, the last point you made in the book, which I, I think is really, maybe you were rushing to publish, because when you made this last point, I thought, well, that deserves a whole book of its own, was this idea that experience is the new scarce resource, right? So economists, we study scarcity. And competitive advantage is really all about scarcity and having something that others wish they could have. And really, it's if prediction is so important, then really learning is super important and learning is the new strategy. And so 
Would you advise strategists to, when they're thinking about kind of the trajectory of their strategy, of the boundaries of the firm, of organizing work, should they be thinking first and foremost about how do they design an organization for learning? How do they design an organization that can get the kind of experience that helps you to travel down that experience curve in ways that, that others can't match? Is that really the essence of strategy today rather than chasing after some unique oil well or chasing after some unique patent or, or trademark? Seek out that access to learning that others might not have access to. Yeah, so I would say, like everything in the book, we think about these just down into terms of raw economics. So we would say, what's the return on investment in learning? So in other words, learning comes at a cost. And so we would not take the view that more learning is always better. But certainly, it's what seems to be true is with machine intelligence, there's a higher return on investment in learning overall. Some of that's learning for the machine, and some of that's learning for the humans. And the reason for that is just learning implies dynamics. It implies that like, there's change over time. And so if we have an industry setting or a task where there's more change over time, then there's higher returns to learning. In an environment that's very stable, there's lower returns to learning. I would say that it's case-specific in terms of how much learning to bake into the design, given that learning is expensive. But on average, I think it's safe to say that most businesses will benefit from having greater learning than they do today. And certainly in a rapidly changing environment, like the one we have right now with COVID-19, there's super high returns to learning, like just unbelievably high. And we're seeing it country to country, like countries who can learn the fastest, how to roll out a vaccine plan quickly, how to implement testing, both PCR and rapid antigen testing, how to handle the data and like what to do with schools and what to do with restaurants, like all that stuff. Things are changing so fast and we're observing so much that the countries that have set up environments that allow them to learn quickly from not just what they're doing, but what other countries are doing and then adapt fast seem to be the ones that are meeting with the most success. Well, I look forward to the sequel. Hopefully you're working on something. I didn't even get to touch on some of your more recent publications and work. And I didn't even talk about your AI canvas, which is, I think, going to give the uh, business model canvas a run for its money, maybe. But check out Prediction Machines, available in English, a couple other languages. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you for being here, AJ. Let's talk again soon, hopefully in person. Greg, thank you for having me. And thank you for doing such a thoughtful reading of the book. Appreciate that. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.